Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash KZT. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on colorectal cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professors Gerald Prager and Chiara Cremolini and Dr. John Strickler. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Charles Brager. I'm an associate professor of the Medical University in Vienna, Austria. I'm a GI oncologist, and with me today, I'm very happy to welcome my colleagues who are also dedicated specialists in GI oncology, Chiara Cremolini from the University of Pisa in Italy, and John Strickler from the Duke University Medical Center, North Carolina, United States. This activity will focus on the multiple lines of active therapy in the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer. We know that we have uh, since uh, recently different lines of treatment available to improve the prognosis of our patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. However, the window of treatment can be minimal and sequential treatment might be confusing. So if patients are deemed to be progressing, we can switch treatment. However, how do we determine the progression and when it's the best time to switch? We currently have a number of strategies for identifying patients who are progressing, but which one should we choose in the daily clinical practice? So the treatment goal in later lines of treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer is for sure the improvement of the prognosis to stop tumor progression, have a good control of the disease, and control of tumor-related symptoms. By this, we have to maintain the quality of life of our patients. So, of course, when we do treatment decisions, we should consider patients' preferences. So the question is, how can we achieve this? Let me first ask you, Professor Strickler, whether you can explain us uh, what is the help of guidelines, especially if we look on the NCCN guidelines, um, which are focusing on the later lines of treatment in metastatic colorectal cancer patients? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today and to discuss this topic with you. After patients progress on first and second line therapies, which typically includes combination chemotherapy with Fulfox and Fulfiri, with either an anti-VEGF or an anti-EGFR therapy, patients are then looking at therapies that may preserve quality of life and yet still maintain control of their disease. In this third-line setting, in, in most national guidelines, we have currently listed regorafenib or trifluridine tri, uh, tipiracil, which is otherwise known as TAS-102. And these are the main options we have available to us at the moment. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Chiara, however, if you look on these guidelines, they're suggesting first-line treatment options, second-line treatment options, and then third-line treatment options, and uh, sometimes also in different scenarios, fourth-line treatment options. But what I hear from uh, colleagues uh, from other centers is sometimes 
that they do recycling of first line treatment in later lines again and again and they do not uh, treat patients with different agents. So what is your opinion on this? Uh, thank you, Garal. I think that uh, we should be very uh, cautious and also very strict in defining when chemotherapy rechallenge may be an acceptable option. For example, you know, when you have achieved a very good response in first line and the patients have progressed while off therapy, for example, after a surgical procedure or after a long duration of maintenance therapy, then at this point, the reintroduction of the same regimen used up front is something that is, in my opinion, feasible in the daily clinical practice. But now we are not in second line. We are actually reintroducing the first line of therapy. So when a progression occurs off treatment, then in this case, I think that reusing the same agents is something feasible and also sound by a clinical and biological point of view. It's completely not sound reusing the same agents uh, that the patient has already received experiencing disease progression while on treatment. So I think this is a clear mistake, in particular when we do have some available efficacious options for chemorefractory patients. However, I think that the scenario is changing and that both regorafenib and trifluoridine tpracil are used and chosen more and more frequently as a third line treatment option in chemorefractory patients. Thank you, Chiara. So can we focus also on uh, international guidelines from the European Society of Medical Oncology they are listening up high levels of evidence options in the third line setting. Can you explain what is ESM recommending and how does it differ from the NCCN guidelines? Well, uh, actually, the ESMO guidelines that have been published uh, really uh, a few months ago and were updated now in 2022 uh, clearly uh, state that for those patients that are RAS and BRAF wild type and have never received an anti-GFR as part of their previous uh, treatments, then using either cetuximab or panitumab may be a good option. But nowadays, I think we all agree that the use of anti-GFRs is rather anticipated towards earlier lines of therapy, at least for those patients with left-sided and RAS and BRAF wild-type tumors. For RAS mutant patients, the choice is regorafenib or trifluoridine tipiracil, and in BRAF mutants, we can consider encorafenib plus cetuximab again, provided that these patients have not received this treatment option before. But again, I think that the use of this option is nowadays anticipated towards the, the second line of therapy. Uh, we have now not a very high level of evidence for uh, anti-HER2 treatments in colorectal cancer, but this is an option in advanced lines of therapy that nowadays in this last version also the ESMO guidelines do take into consideration. So I think that the final message is quite in line and consistent with the NCCM guidelines. John, how important is it to expose patients to multiple lines of active therapy? This is an important question. I think traditionally, when we had fewer options in the refractory setting, there was a common practice to reintroduce or recycle 
um, or rechallenge the same treatments that maybe a patient had received one or two years prior. Now that we have therapies in this refractory setting with clear evidence of survival benefit, I think it's important that we allow the patients the opportunity to have access to these novel therapies um, so that they can receive all of the treatments that are known to produce a survival benefit. The difficulty with reintroducing or recycling an old therapy is that oftentimes the prior toxicity of that treatment can emerge as well. So cumulative toxicity may reemerge in that highly refractory setting, which may limit your ability to give full doses. Additionally, without the uh, evidence of a survival benefit, we have to ask ourselves what is the objective of recycling, say, a first or a second line treatment in this refractory setting. So we are in a new era. This is a time where we have established therapies that have a, a known survival benefit, both regorafenib, uh, trifluridine to piracil, with or without bevacizumab, and there may be others coming soon to the clinic. And we want to ensure that all of the therapies with a known survival benefit are provided to our patients. Thank you, John. Chiara, we also have learned recently that there are different ways to monitor the course of the disease. Besides uh, conventional computer tomography, we have seen studies where ctDNA is monitored uh, to measure progression of the disease and sometimes can also recognize an early onset of resistant clones, which might lead to a progression of the disease. With all these different methods, what uh, is the standard or how do you monitor um, the cause of the disease in your patients when they are treated? Actually, Gerald, I do believe that today the standard way to monitor disease is through CT scan or other radiological images. Uh, this is very important, I think, not to wait too much time before reassessing disease and so before performing a disease re-evaluation, uh, because if we actually believe to have important and efficacious treatment options for our patients. So we do not want to miss the chance to use these drugs. For example, in the case of a rapid clinical disease progression that may quickly lead to a patient's clinical conditions deterioration. For these reasons, I think that at least every three months, we need to reassess the disease burden and to offer our patients a new treatment line in the case of disease progression. Data about ctDNA are quite interesting, are very appealing also to choose advanced lines of therapy and some clinical trials are clearly confirming this attitude but today, I think this is not an easy uh, to apply tool to evaluate disease progression and to monitor disease burden. Thank you, Chiara. Let me summarize this activity. We have learned today that we have standard third-line treatment options in hand, which were tested in prospective clinical phase three trials and are embedded into clinical guidelines from North America as well as from Europe. Saying this, we have on the one hand trifluorine tiparacil, on the other hand regorafenib, where we have seen that both of these options can each uh, improve the prognosis of our patients. It is important that we 
uh, give our patients as many active agents as possible. We have certain alternatives and certain conditions which might be uh, driven by uh, biomarkers like as uh, driver mutations in a small subset of patients. However, we have to consider that when we go through sequential treatment, uh, we should choose treatments with the highest level of evidence where we know that this can improve the prognosis of our patients, thereby maintaining the quality of life. So thank you very much for listening. Hello, my name is Gerhard Prager. I'm an associate professor from the Medical University Vienna, Austria. With me, I'm very happy to welcome my colleagues, Professor Chiara Cremolini from the, from the University of Pisa in Italy and Professor John Strickler from the Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina, United States. We have learned that it is important to treat our patients also in later lines with novel agents and they might have a different mode of action when we compare it to the earlier lines of treatment where we usually use chemotherapy. However, treatment decisions might be driven by different factors. On the one hand, we are looking on molecular characterization of the tumors which might drive the tumor biology. On the other hand, we look on the tumor aggressiveness and this might also drive our treatment decision. Of course, we have to consider the patient's preference when it comes to quality of life and the toxicity profile of the treatment options. And of course, we consider patients' comorbidities, prior lines of treatment, the age of our patients, and of course, their performance status. When we talk about certain later line of treatments, we have different agents available. So um, I want to ask you first, Professor Strickler, what uh, agents do we have in hand in, in later lines of treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer and how you typically select the respective agents for your patients? Thank you, and it's a pleasure to uh, be here with you today. In the third line setting and later in this chemotherapy refractory setting, we have Currently, the approved therapies, regorafenib and trifluridine tapiracil, which um, is, um, also can be given with bevacizumab. There are also biomarker-directed approaches, such as this idea of anti-EGFR rechallenge in uh, medically appropriate patients who have a select molecular profile. And then uh, occasionally, you will also see the use of recycling or rechallenge of prior chemotherapy. The choice in this later line setting is oftentimes as much an art as it is a science. We're looking at the patient in front of us and how they're doing physically, what their end organ function is, their liver function, kidney function, their goals and their strategies, uh, what they want to accomplish, and then we're trying to match up the therapy that offers them the, both, both the best quality of life and hopefully the best prognosis and also helps them accomplish their life goals. So it's very much uh, something where we're drawing from all aspects of that patient and science to identify the best treatment. So thank you very much. So when it comes to regorafenib, it's a little bit, um, let's say, unique because it's the only tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, which is approved in the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer as immunotherapy. 
do you want to um, discuss this a little bit more when we talk about sequencing uh, of the lines of treatment? We have various mechanisms of action we can draw on. Regorafenib is a multi-kinase inhibitor that also has activity against, anti -ve uh, against VEGF. And there are um, many patients who've experienced the cumulative toxicity of first and second line therapy, the cumulative uh, toxicity of cytotoxic chemotherapy. And we may see that in either their performance status or um, their blood counts or other signs. And there are times where switching that mechanism of action to a chemotherapy-free regimen can offer that patient a welcome respite and potentially mix up some of those side effects so that we can allow the effects of the prior chemotherapy to wash out. And I, and I think this is a valuable tool for us in the clinic to be thinking about the patient's individual circumstances to match up the treatment with, uh, that offers that patient the best quality of life uh, because we know that regorafenib also offers a longer uh, survival time. So, um, so those are the kinds of factors that would come into play with choosing a therapy like regorafenib. Thank you very much. Let me sum up the level of evidence we have. Regorafenib was tested in prospective clinical phase 3 trials. One was the CORIC trial, which was performed internationally, intercontinentally, and the other one was the clinical phase 3 trial CONCUR, which was uh, performed in the Asian population. Both trials in common was that they were uh, compared to placebo in the later line setting, so of pre-treated metastatic correctly cancer patients. It has been demonstrated that the use of regorafenib is improving the prognosis of pre-treated patients suffering from metastatic colorectal cancer. When it comes to adverse events, as this is a tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we are observing a different kind of uh, adverse events such as diarrhea, hand, foot, skin reaction, increase of blood pressure, in rare cases, impaired liver function, and change in taste. On the other hand, we have the option of triflurin-tiperacil, or known as TAS-102. This is a cytotoxic drug combination, which also leads to an improvement of the overall survival. This has been also tested in two prospective randomized phase 3 trials. One was the RECROS trial, an internationally intercontinental trial, and the other one's the TERRA trial, again performed in the Asian population. So while there is an, a different mode of action between these two drugs, there is also a different profile of adverse events. The cytotoxic TAS-102 might lead to hematotoxicity, among them most uh, likely neutropenia, but also anemia, thrombocytopenia might, uh, uh, you have to be aware of, might be a decreased appetite, sometimes also nausea, diarrhea, pyrexia. So, Chiara, there has never been a head-to-head -head comparison trial between these two treatment options in later lines. However, can you summarize what is the evidence when we compare one over the other or sequencing these later lines of treatment? 
Uh, Hector Gerald, I think this is a very good question. Uh, you have perfectly summarized the, the efficacy and the safety data with both regorafenib and trifluoridin tipiracil. And I think that at the end of the day, in our daily clinical practice, uh, we are much more influenced by the differences in terms of safety profile in choosing the best treatment for each individual patient at that specific time point of their treatment history, rather than from these indirect, not randomized comparisons of regorafenib versus trifluoridine tipiracil. In fact, different series actually provided not so perfectly consistent results. And overall, in a large Japanese series coming from their real life, it was somehow hypothesized that patients with a better ECOG performance status are more likely to achieve benefit from regorafenib. Chiara, can you tell me about the patient disease-specific characteristics for uh, choosing one or the other treatment? I am mainly influenced by patient's age, uh, general conditions, ECOG performance status, and uh, the level of liver impairment. If a patient is young, uh, has a no, uh, not a, a high burden of a liver disease, uh, the liver is functioning properly, and the, the general conditions are good, then I generally go for regorafenib first. In the other cases, I generally prefer to start with the trifluoridine tipiracil. John, how do the adverse effect profiles drive your uh, treatment recommendation? Well, the two approved therapies that we have in this refractory setting have very different mechanisms of action and that impacts their adverse effect profile. Regorafenib is an anti-VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so it has um, adverse effects more akin to um, that we would see uh, with the anti-VEGF class, so specifically hypertension. Um, we can also see some impacts in rare cases on the liver, hand-foot uh, hand syndrome as well. So if there is concern about either ongoing cardiovascular toxicity, hypertension, I may be more inclined towards a cytotoxic approach. Trifluoridine to piracil, which can be given either with or without bevacizumab, it's a cytotoxic chemotherapy. So it is myelosuppressive, can cause some fatigue and nausea as well. So if uh, the patient is maybe struggling with the cumulative toxicity of myelosuppressive chemotherapy, I may be disinclined towards that. So um, ultimately, we, are, we have two very complementary options, and it allows us to look at the patient in front of us, understand their journey, and find which treatment would be ideal for them in this refractory setting. Thank you, John. Chiara, what is the role of chemotherapy-free intervals, such as by using regorafenib in the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer patients? I think we have to remember that in later lines of therapy, the goal of our treatment is overall survival prolongation while minimizing the adverse events of treatments. As a consequence, I think that the chemo-free intervals are a very good option in the overall continuum of care of our patients and to this end, regorafenib may be a good choice for those patients experiencing still adverse events from previous chemotherapy regimens. John, what is the role for later line agents to serve as a bridge to future chemotherapies in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer? Well, I do think about our approved treatments, both regorafenib and trifluoridine uh, 
topiracil as a bridge because these therapies in general do not uh, generate high response rates. They're designed to maintain control of the disease for a period of time, maintain that patient's quality of life so that they may be um, not just able to uh, main, maintain their activity level, but also may look at therapies in the future, which we have entering the clinic. So it's important as a strategy to maintain control. And that's how I think of it. Um, and it's otherwise thought of as a bridge in that respect. Thank you so much. So let me summarize. In the third line treatment of metastatic rectal cancer, we have uh, treatment options which were well studied in clinical phase 3 trials. On the one hand, we have regorafenib, a multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is uh, partially blocking angiogenesis, but also the metabolism of cancer cells. This is a chemotherapy-free treatment, which leads to a prolongation of the life expectancy of pre-treated patients with colorectal cancer. The second option is trifluoridine tiparacil, which is a chemo combination with a cytotoxic agent. This uh, chemo combination uh, has a different toxicity profile to regorafenib, mainly by leading to hematotoxicity. This, however, might also increase the prognosis of uh, our patient as it was also studied in prospective clinical phase 3 trials. So with this uh, different option, we can do an individual decision for our patients what is the best treatment in third and later lines of treatment. So I want to thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Gerhard Prager. I'm an associate professor of the Medical University in Vienna, Austria. I'm happy to welcome Chiara Cremolini, who is a professor at the University of Pisa in Italy. Professor John Strickler from the Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina, United States. Quality of life is very important in every line of treatment for our patients, but especially in pre-treated patients, so in later lines of treatment, uh, it is important to preserve the quality of life of our patients. Saying that, we have to focus on the adverse event profiles of the treatment options such as from regorafenib or TAS-102. Chiara, can you tell me uh, what can we do to optimize uh, the management in patients treated with regorafenib, such as by escalation dosage strategies, and what is the evidence when we do so? Thank you, Gerald. It's a pleasure to share with you some considerations about the management of later lines of treatment in metastatic colorectal cancer. Well, I do believe that an active and a proactive management of adverse events related to the treatment with regorafenib is crucial to ensure an adequate adherence to the treatment and at the end of the day to exploit this treatment option as best as possible for the continuum of care of our metastatic colorectal cancer patients. Among this management, for sure, we need to educate our patients about the potential adverse events that are related to the exposure to regorafenib so that they can easily manage these adverse events and we can catch 
their onset as soon as possible in order to be very efficacious in counteracting the aggressiveness of a, a toxicity related to regorafenib. Thank you so much. Um, John, might you summarize uh, the clinical evidence of uh, individual dose findings or from clinical trials? Yeah, so one of the challenges we have when a new therapy enters the clinic is that that therapy has been tested in a clinical trial population. And oftentimes the clinical trial population does not match what we would call the real world population, the patient in front of us. So this redose trial was designed to operationalize what many of us were already doing to improve the tolerability of regorafenib in the real world setting in our clinic. So the approved dose level is 160 milligrams daily for 21 days on, seven days off. But many of us were using a lower dose. The redose strategy used half that dose for the first week, and if the patient tolerated that well, it was escalated to three pills or 120 milligrams. And then if the patient continued to tolerate that well, that dose was further escalated. And in this redose trial, um, the study found that outcomes were just as good, if not better, for those patients who started at a lower dose, and tolerability was also improved. And we saw that in quality of life scores, and then also just in terms of general function and well-being. Additionally, the rearranged study looked at a different approach towards uh, uh, alternative dosing. Here, they randomized patients to three different strategies. One was the standard dose of 160 milligrams daily versus a lower dose of 120 milligrams or a um, one week on, one week off approach. And what we can see in this study as well is that outcomes, uh, out, outcomes were essentially identical between the three dosing strategies, suggesting that we can individualize the dose and the dosing strategy based on the patient in front of us, and this can lead still to favorable outcomes. Thank you so much, John. So, Kiara, may I ask you, how can we do an active adverse event management? Uh, in terms of regorafenib, uh, I think that we need to educate our patients about the skin-related toxicities, about the potential onset of fatigue, and we clearly need to monitor liver function uh, in our blood examinations. On the other side, with the trifluoridine chipiracil, we know that these adverse events are mainly hematological, and so we can just check the blood examinations of our patients in order to manage the treatment in terms of delays or reductions of the dose when we found out that uh, there is a neutropenia of grade 3 or 4 or anemia, which is another hematological adverse event that may quite frequently happen, although not at a high level, in, at a high grade in these uh, patients. So John, may I ask you, how uh, time-wise do you follow up your patients when you treat them either with regorafenib or TAS-102 and how often do you re-evaluate your patients? So in my experience, um, the, the ideal time to have a more intensive surveillance is during that first cycle in particular. And you want that follow-up visit to match up with when the toxicity is at its greatest. So with respect to regorafenib, we know that the peak uh, toxicity or the peak side effects will occur um, sometime around the second to third week. And so I try to match up a visit at that time. 
and I, I try to be proactive with toxicity as well. I think the best treatment is prevention. And I think if we're thoughtful about dosing, proactive management with supportive care, bringing in our nurses and pharmacists as well into those discussions, we see the best outcomes. I also like to include family members in those discussions as well to, to maintain open communication. Um, similarly with trifluridine to piracil, we see a similar toxicity profile in that we see the peak of nausea and fatigue sometime during that second week. So I do like to see the patient towards the end of the second week and make sure that we're guiding them through those side effects as well. Uh, and then um, as long as they're doing well at that visit, we would see them two weeks later before starting the next cycle. Thank you, John. Kiara, I have a question for you. As a key opinion leader and a true expert in your field, what is your call uh, to action for physicians to overcome the barriers in implementing uh, side effect management and the dosing strategies in the later line treatment? Um, I think that uh, in our daily life, we all want to avoid the serious adverse events in the patients in advanced lines of therapy because we are uh, well aware of the palliative setting we are in and of uh, the need to prolong overall survival while not affecting a patient's quality of life. But I also think that we, do, we cannot be too worried about toxicity in this specific setting because we have a lot of experience about the use of these drugs and we perfectly know what to expect. And without worrying our patients too much, having a clear communication about what they can expect and how to overcome these adverse events is, in my opinion, the key uh, point in order to make uh, our patients confident in facing this new phase of their disease. With regard to dosage, uh, regorafenib dosage in particular, I think that the results from both redose and rearrange are quite reassuring that we are not missing efficacy while improving treatment tolerability with this flexible escalating dose system. Thank you so much, Chiara. John, you're the principal investigator of many early clinical trials. Can you give us an overview what to expect in the near future in the daily clinical practice in the late-line setting of treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer patients? Well, fortunately, there are, uh, we are continuing to see innovation in this space, and I think patients will benefit from these innovations. We have results from Fresco 2 from last year, which looked at a, another anti-VEGF multikinase inhibitor after patients had progressed on either uh, regorafenib or trifluridine to piracil. And here there was a survival benefit seen for the investigational therapy for quintinib. This is not yet available in the clinic. Additionally, we have recently saw results from the Sunlight trial, which is a phase three randomized trial comparing TAS-102, otherwise known as trifluridine to piracil, with or without bevacizumab. And here in patients who are candidates for bevacizumab, it appeared that the combination of the two drugs was superior to trifluridine to piracil by itself. Additionally, what I find particularly exciting is that we're increasingly using precision cancer medicine strategies to target individual gene mutations um, and to find novel strategies 
to target these cancers. And I think regorafenib is a, is a valuable tool, as is trifluridine to piracil, but we're seeing it in a bigger landscape of innovation here in this refractory setting. Thank you. Let me summarize this action. We have learned that uh, there are different options in the late line setting, just as using trifluridine or regorafenib. They're characterized by different adverse events profiles. However, to give our patients the best benefit of these late-line treatment options, it is important to do a proactive adverse event management. One strategy when it comes to regorafenib is flexible dosing. It has been shown in prospective clinical trials that a rapid increase in the dosing uh, of regorafenib to find an individual dose is beneficial to the patients and they can stay longer uh, on the regorafenib treatment and might have a better benefit in terms of overall survival. Another strategy is the monitoring of adverse events and proactively uh, pre prevent adverse events and if adverse events uh, emerge that we react on it by dose delaying and uh, sometimes dose reduction. We have also seen that there is a lot of activity in clinical trials uh, to improve the prognosis of our patients by novel drug combinations and uh, novel approaches. And uh, we will see in the near futures even an increase of uh, the survival of our patients by the implementations of these strategies into the daily clinical practice. I want to thank you for your attention and I want to thank John and Chiara for joining me today. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.